Prevent Coalition welcomes you to our new podcast. We're sharing stories and strategies to help coalitions and organizations reach their full potential. Follow along at preventcoalition.org. Welcome, everybody, to episode one of the Prevent Podcast. My name's Jesse. My name's Christopher. And we're your hosts. Today, we're going to cover everything to do with the rural network from all the way back to when we first wrote the grant, all the way up to what we're doing right now. The rural network is funded by YEMPEP dollars. For those of you that might not know, YEMPEP stands for Youth Marijuana Prevention Education Program. It's funding source through the Washington State Department of Health, dedicated marijuana account. So it's all funded through marijuana tax dollars. And what the Department of Health has done is they've identified different regions amongst it. They've broken the state up into different regions and each region gets a certain amount of money and they're called the YEMPEP regional grants. So Prevent has the Southwest Regional Grant, which covers Clark County, Skamania County and Klickitat County. And then in addition to the regional grants, the Department of Health has also identified uh, a select number of priority populations that also receive grants. These grants aren't given based on geographic location, uh, but instead are given based on the population served. So there's a priority population grant that serves the Hispanic and Latino communities across Washington state, the LGBTQ plus community, And there's also a priority population grant for rural communities, which is what supports the rural network. So now that you have a little bit of background knowledge about where this funding comes from, we are going to take you all the way back to October of 2019, um, when the Department of Health first announced that they were creating a rural communities grant. Christopher, you were the regional coordinator um, at that time. Tell us a little bit about conversations that went on in the cubicles of Prevent when this grant was announced. It was a really exciting and scary moment. Personally, I was nervous because if we received this grant, I knew that my job would change drastically. But then, of course, there was excitement because Prevent Southwest region had been serving rural communities for a very long time, but never to the capacity that we wanted to. I remember our first brainstorm sessions were about, oh, we could take what we're doing in Clark County and we can bring it to Klickitatska Mania and even more. There was about 15 tasks that we had to do mandated by this grant. But then there was also a lot of things we wanted to do in addition to what it required. This grant did not call for a coalition structure. It actually required us to have what they called a citizen advisory panel, a panel of rural representatives to inform communications, campaigns, things like that. But if anyone knows anything about ESD 112 and Prevent, they know we think, go big or go home. We're we're not gonna do an advisory panel, we're gonna do a coalition. 
We know coalitions work. We know they're effective. They create long-lasting community change, and that's what we wanted to do for these rural communities. Once we started looking at the data and meeting with potential rural partners, it was very clear that this couldn't just be for the Southwest region. This had to be for the whole state. There were so many people we wanted to serve. We knew it would take a full coalition to make it happen. We kind of took the general concepts of the grant and, and then it exploded into what it is today, which is a really big statewide coalition. The Southwest region like we had mentioned, Prevent was already serving the Southwest region. Out of those three counties, two of them, Skamania and Klickitat, are both rural counties. And ESD-112 spans even more than what the MPEP region is. Did you guys take into consideration the reach of ESD-112 as a whole? That was absolutely part of our conversation, is there's so many people we aren't allowed to serve even though they're within our, our organization's reach, it's not part of the Southwest region. Like we'll hold a training for youth and we invite everyone at ESD 112 and we always have to say, this is for the Southwest region. If there's spots left over, then Cowlitz can come or, or then Long Beach can come. And that is never a fun barrier to put up. We definitely thought this is a great way to extend our reach to the full ESD region. And of course, then it extended statewide. I want to talk a little bit more about the timeline. DOH sent the communications that this grant was available early October. Mm -hmm. When did you guys actually have to submit the grant application? So we got news of the rural grant October 2019. Immediately, we called a meeting. <laughs> it was only like an hour meeting, but we were like, okay, we have to do this. We have the capacity, we have the passion, we know we have the skills to make it happen. It took us about a month. We submitted on November 21st of 2019, and then we hit the ground running in March of 2020. <laughs> the grant application we submit, it was actually 50, over 50 pages. And my approach was really just, we have all these ideas, I'm just gonna go for it. There was no page limit. We wanted to be very, very clear from day one about how we intended to serve this community. We wrote a month-by-month -month timeline for two years on everything we do, which has been such a gift to me now, because now anytime I'm like, I don't know what we should do at this meeting, I already have a timeline that I wrote like over a year ago <laughs> that I can look at and it tells me what to do. We wrote how we were gonna evaluate the program, how we were defining success. A lot went into that, not only myself, we had a lot of people contributing. We didn't know if we were gonna get the grant, so we were like, do we hire someone? Do, do we just keep doing our other work? Like I, I was preparing to transition to a new job, and so it was just a big period of anticipation, but I think because we had all of that prep work done, we knew our vision, we knew who our partners were gonna be, they were all named in the proposal. Um, we had a recruitment plan in the proposal, everything was already done. So in March, when we finally got the grant, of, uh, we were able to just hit the ground running. And what did that look like? We 
were able to hire you. So we actually hired you before we had the grant. <laughs> I remember that being kind of scary because you had to leave a job and we were like, what if we hire Jesse and then we don't get the grant? Yeah, it was scary for me too. I, I remember during that time period, I had came into ESD and I was like, okay, so this sounds like a great opportunity. What, what's the timeline look like? And everybody knew I worked at PAL, um, which is a small local nonprofit. In the nonprofit world, it's best to give more than a two-week notice if you can. So, I mean, it kind of worked out well. But I remember calling weekly and saying, can I start yet? <laughs> <laughs> And that period of waiting, even though we couldn't start working, we were constantly having conversations in the break room, like, what would this look like? Or what would that look like? I had written that press release announcing the Rural Network a million times in my head. When it finally came time to like do recruitment, it was very easy to just call up our communications department and write a press release and build a website. Our other task for the first few months was doing a needs assessment. Coalitions, they always have to go back and refine their action plan based on what they learn from their network and from their community members. So we had a proposed action plan, but that did change based on the feedback we got. We wanted to start the needs assessment in March, but it was a tough time because all of our partners were with public health. If you recall, we got the grant in March and March is actually right when the pandemic, the global pandemic of COVID hit. It was a very interesting time to start a new project um, because it was right when everything was literally shutting down and we got sent home. <laughs> I was on my, only on my third week of working at ESD <laughs> when we got sent home and we haven't been sent back yet. It's really been an interesting roller coaster of experiences. We got this grant to serve rural communities in Washington state. The grant, state law, even federal law, there's no consistent definition of what a rural community is. And so I remember that being one of the biggest or the first hurdles that we had to overcome. The, the first step of doing a needs assessment is defining your community. Can you talk a little bit about the process that you went through in, in coming up with a definition that for the coalition of what a rural community was? So the request for proposal for the Department of Health grant, it did not include a specific definition of rural. It gave some descriptions on what issues rural communities face, but it did not specifically say the population to be served. We were responsible for defining that. We had a really difficult time defining it. The US census has a definition of rural Washington State has our own state definition of rural, and Department of Health has its own definition of rural, even though it wasn't in the proposal. And then we, as an organization, had our own thoughts on what rural was. At the same time, we were having key informant interviews with rural community members. And what we found was a person who was just 15 minutes from an urban center self-identified very passionately as rural and the issues they talked about, the strengths in their communities, the struggles in their communities, although it's in a different context, it was, they were telling me the same things that someone from three hours away from the nearest urban center, they were talking about the same 
trials and tribulations, the same strengths, the same assets, and they also identified as rural. How do we make sure both of these people are served? Both of them have a seat at our table. We did choose a definition. A rural community that we're gathering data from is an area with a population of less than 10,000 people and that exists, it's one hour driving distance from the nearest urban center. And we have that mapped out on our website if you wanna go check it out. We chose that definition. It's one of the rural definitions from the US Census. That really helped us to gather data because we already had access to demographics and income, population, education level, things like that. We didn't have to gather that ourselves because we use the census definition. We needed to get that information before we could do recruitment even um, to know which cities and which towns we should recruit from. I think that's something, and maybe you can speak to this too, that we still deal with every day is what does it mean to be rural? We do, um, and we have talked about it from the beginning. I remember being in staff meetings where we're like, but if we use this definition of rural that excludes certain people that identify as rural, and how are we going to overcome that, that hurdle? Even to this day, when we have a rural community meeting, we, we always have to do the disclaimer that even if your community isn't one of the ones that's highlighted as rural on our map, that doesn't mean that, that you're not welcome at our meetings. Uh, like I, I said in our episode zero, I love working in prevention because prevention is so inclusive. And we wanted to bring that inclusivity to the rural network. It's something that the Prevent Coalition has always had as basically one of our core values. And I think that we do a really good job of it because we always say that there's really three different types of people that the rural network serves. And one of them is um, people that were born and raised in rural communities and they live in rural communities. The second is people that currently live in rural communities, but they're a transplant. They came from a more urban or suburban area and they're new to this rural community and they wanna learn more about serving rural communities and rural culture and mm -hmm. uh, the risk and protective factors that come along with it. And then there's the third, group, which is honestly people like me and you, Christopher, who live in a more urban or suburban area, but the work that we do um, serves rural communities and uh, learning how we can better serve rural communities through the rural network. Those three categories really allow anybody who wants to be involved in the work that we do the opportunity to do so without feeling left out. And we have a pretty good mix of all three. Like I think each of those is represented almost equally. I think so. It really just depends who you talk to. You know, when we show people the map, I've heard from some people that are like, my community doesn't fit into those guidelines, but we are most definitely rural. And who am I to tell them that they're not, right? But then I remember we also heard from people that were like, if this community has 10,000 people in it, there's no way that it's rural. My community has 2,000 people in it. That's way too big to be considered rural. Rural means something different to everybody. The way that we set up the rural network has really allowed us to be the most inclusive that we can. And I think each of those three different groups that we identified bring different strengths to the rural network. Um, and I think it works really well together.
we were on the road to talking about how COVID impacted mm. the work of the rural network. How do you think that COVID impacted the work that the rural network does? I think COVID impacted us as staff first and foremost, because just like everyone else, we had to adapt to working from home. We were sent home really early and learning to, to do things online was new for us. I had never used Zoom before. Ultimately, I think we were actually in a pretty good spot because our rural network was always going to be online. We did plan on having one or two in-person retreats. However, obviously those were canceled, but ultimately all of our meetings were going to need to be online regardless of COVID. I think the biggest way COVID held us back was with our needs assessment. We couldn't access the healthy use survey data for rural communities because of COVID. Instead, we did qualitative data, listening sessions, key informant interviews, an online survey, and all of this stuff to sort of be there for once we did get the healthier survey, it could just back up what the data from the survey was telling us. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the grant writing process, um, the onboarding process, hiring new staff, conducting the needs assessment, and how we wanted um, the rural network to be a coalition. I want to kind of transition into talking about what your meetings look like. How often does the rural network meet? What do those meetings look like? What's discussed? What happens? I love our meetings. Every time we get off a meeting with our network, I just am smiling. Our meetings are virtual on Zoom every month. We do have multiple subcommittee meetings where people can come to like an optional event we're having or an optional planning meeting. It's been a big learning curve because I had never used Zoom before. So we started out pretty basic. And now I feel like our meetings are very engaging. Even though they're online, we do breakouts, handouts, guest speakers, panel presentations. It definitely feels like a community. It feels like a small gathering, even though we are strangers from across the state in very, very different parts of the state. And that's something we didn't talk about earlier, but I think even though one person, when they log off Zoom, they might be looking at an ocean because they live on an island and another person might be looking at a forest and I can see their trees in the background of their Zoom window and, and someone else might be in a total desert and like all these different types of rural, um, they come together and they bring such positive energy and such good insight to their community and it makes the work really enjoyable. I think you bring up a good point, Christopher, that we didn't actually talk about earlier, which was that our membership uh, in the rural network um, geographically covers every corner of the state. (laughs) So most of our listeners are probably in Washington state somewhere. And so they're familiar with the like West East divide in Washington state. And so like we have Western Washington and then there's like the Cascade Mountain Range. And if you're on the east side of the Cascade Mountain Range, culture is different. Weather is different. For me, it just feels like that West East divide that is so prominent in Washington state doesn't exist when we're all in the rural network meeting. Like absolutely. We have people from the Spokane area and 
Eastern Washington and we have people all the way on the most Western side of Washington and they just meet and they collaborate together and they work together. And you would have never known there was a West East divide. Um, <laughs> if you only knew the rural network. It's true. I feel really blessed that we just have such positive energy and, and we've also worked really hard to make that happen. One of the very first things we learned was we have to make time for relationship building it would be inappropriate and culturally insensitive for us to just dive into work in a meeting um, because that's not what small towns do. It's a very handshake culture. You meet someone, you build relationships, you have a business meeting with them, and then you're probably going to see them at the grocery store tomorrow morning. It, you have to build relationships. And that's always been a part of coalition work, but I think even more so in the rural network, we dedicate a pretty big amount of time to relationship building, but in a way that doesn't feel weird. It's never felt weird to me because it is a norm amongst our community. On the topic of membership, do you want to talk a little bit about what their background is? They're not all substance abuse prevention coordinators. When we started recruitment, we planned it out just like a normal coalition except statewide. So we did try really hard to involve all 12 sectors in our work. I We have not achieved that yet, but I am very proud of, of what we have. Probably the majority of our members are prevention staff or part of a coalition. We have people who serve on city councils, a pretty big education sector uh, represented. So there's a number of teachers, there's a number of superintendents, a few nonprofits as well. We have parents, the parent sector is represented. We do have a number of people who know about the strategic prevention framework. So it's been easy for us to just hit the ground running and go fast. But at the same time, there's a pretty large percentage of people who have never been involved in prevention. So it makes it really important to us to be aware of that and responsive to that. Just like any other coalition, the Rural Network has a steering committee. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you went about starting the steering committee and then like what does the steering committee actually do? We have the best steering committee ever. Our steering committee started with, it was just staff. So our first meetings in March were, it was just staff. We didn't have membership, let alone a steering committee. Some of our early conversations were about, we want to be representative of all four quadrants of the state. So geography was important to us. Um, We wanted to have at least one prevention professional on our steering committee but we also wanted to make sure we didn't only have prevention staff on our steering committee. We were thinking maybe five to seven people, and we did want every one of them to be truly rural, and we needed them to be part of the rural areas on our map. We started, we just threw out a call to everyone who had attended our first couple meetings. We said, hey, is anyone interested in guiding this work? And we got five responses, I believe, The swiftness and the willingness to get involved with the steering committee helped me realize how important this work is and how necessary this work is because each of them was just so willing. They all have full-time jobs. They all 
some of them have multiple jobs and they wear multiple hats in the community and yet they were immediately willing to sacrifice their time and energy to be with us and that speaks volumes our steering committee makes a number of decisions they're pretty heavily involved in the action planning process so they plan every single one of our meetings they tell me what the agenda is going to be and then i make it happen I give them updates on our projects and how we're, where we're working towards our goals. And then they tell me feedback on, here's what we need to do to make those goals happen. They talk a lot about recruitment and the culture of our, our network. And they also talk about our budget. And so they have done a really good job at saying, okay, if we have this amount of money, here's what we want. And if we don't, here's what we want instead. I think it's great that you were able to give us that insight into uh, uh, the role that the steering committee plays. I also want to take a moment here uh, quickly to echo what you said about our steering committee being amazing. And I want them to know that we really do appreciate them and all of the work that they do for us because they make our job as coordinators easier. Kudos to them. Shout out to them. They rock. Well, thank you, Christopher. This has almost kind of been like an interview format. Not all of our podcasts will be like this, but if you want to learn more about the Rural Network um, or access some of um, the things that we talked about today on the podcast, such as the map or our needs assessment, you can do so at our website. Really informative, really great conversations. Looking forward to the next episode. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. See you next time. Bye.